Look at the back wall very quickly. You will not scare me today by looking back at the clock. <laughs> so I'm going to preach till I get done. All right, take your Bibles, if you would, please. Open them to the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 13. We've been studying for the past month or so in this 13th chapter. And uh, this is really a sentimental favorite of many Christians. If I were to ask you, what is the greatest characteristic of God? Most of you would probably say, God is love. God is powerful, God is infinite, God is eternal. Those are great characteristics of God. They're awesome, unmatched abilities that God has, but those things are impersonal. And without those attributes, God couldn't be God, but that's not the thing that we really think about when we think about God the most. I think when we think about God, we think about this great, infinite, eternal God who desires a relationship with us. And that is really an outstanding, unfathomable, unimaginable thing, that the great God of this universe would love us so much that he would send his only begotten son into the world to die for our sins. That is unmatched, unparalleled love. I don't know why God was willing to do that. We've learned in our studies that in the Greek language, there are more words for love than we have in the English In the English, we have just that one word, that's L-O-V-E, and that stands for the way that we love our mothers and our fathers, the way that we love our husband and our wives. It stands for patriotic love. We use the same word when we say that I love ice cream and I love apple pie. We use the very same word, and the way that we determine what we mean is by the context of how we use that word. But in the Greek language, it's different because they have a word that describes each of those different kinds of love. Well, when we talk about God's love, the word that the Apostle Paul uses in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 is the word agape. Now, the interesting thing about it is, is that not only does that stand for the love that God has for us as his children, but it's also the way that we are to love one another. Now, immediately ought to see a problem with that. I mean, that that causes us a problem because we don't really know, or how am I supposed to do this? How can I love another person in the same way that God loves me? That requires some explanation. And that's what Paul does in this chapter. This is an explanation of the many different facets of love. He's not talking about romantic love. It's not speaking of affectionate love here. He's not talking about patriotic love. This is the same kind of love that caused God to send Jesus Christ to come into this world to die for our sins. So Paul gives an explanation of this, but he does it in the middle of a discourse about spiritual gifts. The Corinthians were very prideful, arrogant, selfish people, and they didn't use spiritual gifts in the way that God intended And so Paul has something to say about this. And what he explains to them is that all of your gifts are useless. All spiritual gifts amount to nothing if those gifts are not used in love. In the passage today, Paul speaks about the permanence of love. Though everything else in the world will pass away, love will always endure. And all spiritual gifts will pass away, but love stays. Now, I've spent a lot of time talking about love. We had two sermons in which I described uh, love as a many-splendored thing was the name of those sermons. And there we looked at God's diamond of love. You turn love around and you see the many different facets, just like a gemstone. God's love shines through and the love that we are to have for other people has so many different facets to it. And all of those facets are beautiful. Well, today, 
we're going to shift gears a little bit, and we're going to talk about a very controversial subject. And I hope when you leave today, nobody's going to be mad at me, but I think that I have a responsibility as a preacher of the gospel and the pastor of Berean Baptist Church to tell you the truth about what God's Word says. And so you may, some people, I don't know, you may not like what I have to say, but Paul has some important subjects to talk about here. And this comes in the context of a discussion about love. And so we have here some very, very interesting doctrinal, doctrinal concepts in this chapter. Let's read about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Stand with me, please, as we read God's Word. And we're going to start at verse number 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse number 8. Charity never faileth. And, of course, we understand the word charity there is love. Love never faileth. But whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then shall I know, even as also I am known. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three. But the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. Heavenly Fathers, we come before you today. We ask you that you would open up the scriptures to our understanding. Lord, help us as we talk about this, though this may be very controversial in some circles. Yet, Lord, we want to speak the truth of your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The intention of the scriptures that we read here, of course, Paul is pointing out the superiority of love to all spiritual gifts. The greatest of gifts and the least of gifts will all fade away at some point. But what Paul is trying to tell us here is that love will always last. Love outlasts all spiritual gifts. Some spiritual gifts were intended to last longer than other spiritual gifts. There were some spiritual gifts that are given that God intended that they would be here throughout the whole time of the church age until Jesus comes again. But there are other spiritual gifts that we believe that God says are going to cease. They're not intended to last that long. Now, that's what we want to make the first point of the message today. I want you to see that some gifts will cease. If you look at that eighth verse, chapter 13, it says, Charity never faileth, love never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Where there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now, I want us to rewind everything just a little bit and go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 for just a minute. There, Paul is speaking about the diversity of spiritual gifts. And in verses 8 through 11, Paul gave a list of different spiritual gifts. And then in verse number 28, he mentions those gifts again. We talked about that passage. And, and in our discussion of those gifts, I explained that there are some of the gifts that God gave that were temporary sign gifts. There are some things like the gift of apostleship that, that was placed in the church for only the formative years of the church. That was here while the church was building, while the church was in its infancy. But there were other gifts that God said would be permanent in the church. Those would last. Those would be here until Jesus comes again. 
Well, the question today, and, and one that's disputed by many, is what is the timing of the passage of those temporary gifts? Or, and, and also, are they in fact temporary? Now, you'll notice that when you come to Brim Baptist Church that we don't practice things like speaking in tongues. We don't have the gift of healing in the church. We don't practice any kind of miracles. And neither do we believe that God today is giving any new revelation concerning his word. There are no new things that God's telling us today. But there are some churches who don't believe that. Those churches are usually designated as charismatic churches. And they very definitely believe that these sign gifts are still operative operative today. They say that Christians ought to still practice these things in the church today. Some of them will go so far as to say that if you don't practice these spiritual gifts, things like speaking in tongues and other things, the healings and so forth, that you're not really a spiritual Christian. And you have to have those things in order to prove your spirituality. And then there are even some who go further than that and say that if you do not evidence salvation by speaking in tongues, then that means that you aren't saved. Speaking in tongues to some is a verification of salvation. Well, is there actually any basis for that in the Word of God? Are we supposed to use those gifts in the church today? I don't believe that we are. And the vast majority of Baptists don't believe that we're supposed to do that. Now, today, we're going to talk about some of the proofs of why we shouldn't use those kinds of things today. Uh, We're we're going to talk about some more in in the next couple of weeks about this and give you more proofs. But, But I want to point out here in in this first topic that we're talking about, some very quick observations, quick information today about this first point, that gifts will cease. Here we have, in the context of an argument of the permanence of love, Paul says that there are three gifts that are going to pass away. These are the gifts of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of knowledge. Now let me define for you one more time what those gifts are according to the New Testament. First of all, the gift of tongues. What's that all about? Well, the gift of tongues in the New Testament was when God would give somebody the ability to speak in a foreign language that they'd never learned before. Now, this was always a known language, not an unknown language, but a known language that people could speak in. And you would be given this gift, and you could go up to someone, and you could speak to them in their native language without ever having learned that language, and you could speak and you could understand what they were saying. The gift of prophecy in the New Testament usually refers to simply the preaching of the gospel of Christ. Usually, when you see prophecy used, it means the proclaiming of God's word. But obviously, in this passage, that's not what Paul's talking about. Because if he were speaking of just simply preaching, and he says that preaching is going to be done away with, and that's not going to last until Jesus comes, then you could see that people wouldn't be able to be saved. Because it's by the preaching of the gospel of Christ that people come to know Jesus as the Savior. So here he's not talking about preaching, but rather he's using prophecy in the ordinary sense that we think of when we use that term. And that means some new revelation. In other words, something revealed that hadn't already been written in the word of God. Well, since the New Testament wasn't completed at the end of the first century, uh, God was giving new revelation. He gave it to the writers of the New Testament. So they wrote down new revelation that God gave. The gift of knowledge is a similar gift. Now, really, it's not talking about new revelation per se, but it's really talking about when God reveals something to your mind that you haven't learned before. 
For instance, there may be a, a great truth that you read about in the Old Testament and God would suddenly reveal to that person exactly what that means before the person really studied that out. God would show them, he'd give them scriptures, an understanding of scripture that they haven't studied before. Now, these kinds of gifts, Paul says here, are not like love. And that's why Paul makes a contrast. He says love is permanent and those gifts are not permanent. And if they were permanent, then there wouldn't be any any use for Paul to make this argument in the force of contrast here. So he says one is permanent and one is not permanent. Now let's take that first gift, the gift of tongues. Why did God give the gift of tongues? I want you to turn in your Bibles a little bit towards the back to the book of Hebrews. Let's find Hebrews chapter 2. While you're looking there, how many of you can raise your hand and say, you know why Hebrews is called Hebrews? All right, some of you do. Hebrews is called Hebrews. Why? Because it's written to Jewish Christians. Primarily, Hebrews is written to Jewish Christians, and it was aimed at these Jews who who needed some explanation about how that Christ was the fulfillment of the Old Testament. And so you find many explanations of Old Testament things in the book of Hebrews. As you probably know, uh, the the Jewish people were very resistant to the teachings of Christ, and and they had a hard time giving up all of those Old Testament practices, and, and they were very hard to convince that Jesus was really the Messiah. Even today, as we well know, there's a small minority percentage of Jewish people that actually become Christians. Well, look here in verses 3 and 4 in Hebrews chapter 2. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him? Notice verse 4. God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders and divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost according to his own will. Now, there are the writers explaining that salvation only comes in Jesus Christ. And if you reject Jesus as the Messiah, then there is no escaping the judgment of God. And then he goes on to say that the message of Christ was confirmed with certain things. It's confirmed with signs and wonders and many different miracles. Hebrews was written before A.D. 70. And already the writer here is showing us or speaking about these gifts as being in the past. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 22, that in order to convince the Jews of the message of Christ, they require a sign. He says, for the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after wisdom. Now that means that it took miracles to convince the Jews. They had to have all these wonderful signs and miracles before they would believe Jesus is truly the Messiah. The Greeks are different. I mean, they're intellectuals, and so they say, well, you've got to give us the intellectual proof. Show us all of those things, and that will convince us that Jesus is who you say that he is. But Jews, no. They're looking for miracles. They're looking for something that will confirm the word of God. Is this true, what you're saying? Well, do we need that today? Well, no. Notice this first, that the Jews do not need to be convinced. Today, we're not trying to convince Jews about the validity of Christ. The purpose of miracles and and signs and all these wonders that took place in the first century, John said, I mean, that's, that's the reason we did that, the reason those things were here, because these are to convince you that Jesus is truly the Messiah. And he wanted to show them that the church, now the church is the plan for God in the world. And we're going to get to it a little bit later, but Paul said in the 14th chapter that the gift of tongues was a sign for unbelievers. 
It's not to convince people that believers or that are believers or to prove anyone's spirituality like people use it today. This is primarily a sign for the Jews. We don't need this sign for the Jews any longer. Christianity is established, and I don't believe that you'll find in any of the charismatic churches that they are busy speaking in tongues in order to convince Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. So that shows us this, this particular purpose, that's passed away. But it's also for another purpose. Signs and wonders were also used to vindicate and to confirm the work of the apostles. But today, the apostles don't need to be confirmed. No longer today are, are we concerned about trying to convince people that the apostolic message is true. Now, they were able to do these things in those days, like speaking in tongues, and, and that showed the people that here is a supernatural gift. This is something that comes from God. Nobody had ever seen anything like it before. Nobody had ever heard of somebody speaking in multiple languages that they'd never learned and understanding those languages. That told them this must be a supernatural gift that's given by God. Nobody else has that. And so the apostles' message was confirmed. And God gave that sign, and he showed it by that sign. I don't know if you've noticed this, but it's been a long time since anybody saw an apostle. I haven't seen people doing what the apostles could do. I haven't seen anybody raise somebody from the dead. Anybody witness that yet? I haven't seen anybody do that. One of the prerequisites for being an apostle is that the person had to see the resurrected Christ. There's no one living today that's ever seen the resurrected Christ. Now, there are some people today who claim that they're apostles. They say that they're apostles and they believe in apostles. There was once a man who came to church here, and he claimed to be an angel. Another man came to church and stood right up in the middle of the preaching and said, I'm Peter. And he had something that he wanted to say to the church. He wasn't an apostle. He was a nutcase. He wasn't an apostle. Well, we don't have apostles today. We don't need that any longer. And so we don't need something to verify an apostolic message. We have the Word of God. How else do we know tongues are ceased? Well, there's a third reason. The New Testament does not command it. Not one time in the New Testament is any Christian ever told, you must speak in tongues. Not once was it ever said after Pentecost or Acts chapter 10 that this was given to confirm the spirituality or the salvation of any person. In fact, you find more in the Bible against the use of tongues and against the abuse of tongues, and you'll ever find anything that's said in favor of it or the use of it. In no New Testament book written to the churches did any apostle ever tell Christians to seek for the gift of tongues. In fact, when, when Paul mentions the gifts of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, he doesn't mention tongues. Peter never spoke about tongues. John never mentioned it. James never said anything about it. Jude never spoke of tongues. So every time that you have an opportunity in the Scriptures to speak about salvation and about Christian service, there is not one single instance where it said, we're to seek for the use of tongues. Speaking of tongues is not mentioned in the book of Romans. And in no book after 1 Corinthians do you find the mention of tongues in the Bible. I preached 96 messages from the book of Ephesians and conspicuously absent from a book that talks about Christian living, that talks about the Lord's church, that talks about the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, not one time is the gift of tongues mentioned in that book. I mentioned this when we were, when we were uh, preaching from the book of Ephesians, that Paul talked about being filled with the Spirit. 
He says, be filled, don't be drunk with wine, be filled with the Spirit and so on. But not once did Paul ever mention tongues in that book. 1 Corinthians, in fact, is one of the earliest books written in the New Testament. And after 1 Corinthians, tongues is already on the way out. And so if you can find one instance in the New Testament where we are told that we're supposed to speak in tongues, then you show me where that is. Forty years I've been studying the Bible. I've yet to find that scripture. So tongues are no longer here today. But there's another step that we can take further on this to prove that they aren't. Fourthly, history does not contain it. From the time of the first century up until the early 20th century when some people in Los Angeles got very confused and mixed up about things, there is no mention in church history about the use of tongues. In my library, I have some books that are written by some of the greatest Christian authors who have ever lived, some of the greatest uh, books that have been written by Christian men, and not one of them ever speaks about any experience of speaking in tongues. So I wonder, how is it that they are spiritual people? How could they be spiritual people if it is, as the Charismatics claim, that in order to show your spirituality, you must speak in tongues? And tongues is a wonderful, godly experience. You can't find it in church history because it didn't exist. So if people would simply look here at Paul's statements in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, without even going into chapter 14... You can't come to any other conclusion but that Paul meant these gifts will cease. The argument is love continues. Love is permanent, but these gifts will cease. By way of example and by way of contrast, they will cease. What we really need today, folks, is a little bit less emotionalism and a whole lot more expositions of the Word of God. But let's go on, because here we have some more answers why gifts are not needed today. Let's read verses 9 and 10. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. When that which is perfect is come. Now, secondly today, I want you to see that God's word is complete. The gift of tongues was a sign for the Jews, and and that was vindication of the apostles' ministry. Prophecy and knowledge are different, though. Those things were given for different purposes. The reason the gifts of prophecy and knowledge were given is because God still had something to say to his people. There were still some things that God had to reveal. If you know the history, then you understand that when the Old Testament ended, it was 400 years before God ever spoke to his people again. The Old Testament ends, the revelation to the prophets was given, revelation was given to prophets, and for 400 years, God did not speak to his people. No further word from God. But then one day, God appeared to a man by the name of Zacharias, and he told him that a child would be born, and this child would come in the power and in the spirit of Elijah. That child was John the Baptist. John the Baptist then became the last Old Testament prophet. And it was John the Baptist's job to declare that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, at that point, God starts speaking to his people again. Now, there's new revelation that comes. There are new things that need to be recorded. And these new things that were written down, those things became the New Testament. But God didn't give all of that revelation at one time. He didn't say, well, here's year, year 1 A.D. or whatever, and say, well, now it's time to give all the revelation I'm going to give. God didn't do it that way. It took many years to write the Old Testament, and it took many years, not quite as many as for the Old, 
as it did for the Old, but it took many years to reveal all of the New Testament. So here's what we notice about this. With prophecy, prophecy came piece by piece. Paul says we prophesy in part. And what he meant was that when he was writing 1 Corinthians, God was still revealing new things to him. Other apostles would receive new revelations. Uh, Peter would write some things, and James would write some things. And then finally, John, as a very old man at the end of the first century, would write, and God would give him the last revelation for the Word of God. And so when John wrote that last book, which is appropriately called the Revelation, that was the last thing that God had to say. And so when that book was written, when John finished Revelation, everything God has to say is finished. And now everything that we need to know is contained right here in the 66 books of the Bible. You'll find everything that you need to know about God right here. So what is it that we call the Bible? We call it the perfect, infallible, inspired Word of God. At the end of the first century, God's Word was complete. And so God stopped giving revelatory prophecy. And so piece by piece, God revealed these things to Paul, and he revealed them to others. And then when that last piece was put in place by the Apostle John, God was no longer giving us revelations. Now, let's go back for just a minute to the practice of tongues as people use them today. Many people in churches today that practice this claim that God is giving a new revelation. And maybe there'll be somebody there to interpret some kind of wild tongue that they're speaking in. Maybe somebody's there to interpret or maybe not. But they say that God is giving a new revelation. Let me ask you a question. What would God have to say that's different from what he has in his word? What would God have to say to us that's so important that he left it out of the Bible? What would that be? You know, I learn everything that I need to know from the Bible because it is the perfect Word of God. You don't add things to things that are perfect, do you? If you add something to something perfect, what do you get? Do you get something that's perfecter? I've never heard of that of you. The Word of God is already perfect, so there's no degrees of perfection. We have the infallible, inspired Word of God. You know what the Word of God testifies about itself? In, In 2 Timothy 3, verses 16 and 17... All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. And listen, that the man of God may be perfect, truly furnished unto all good works. What are you going to add to that? What could you possibly add to it? So what could tongues add to perfection? What are you going to get out of a tongue that you don't get out of the Word of God? Well, I'll tell you, you're not going to get anything out of it. You're not going to get another message out of the tongue that you wouldn't get from the Bible. So why does God need to speak to somebody through an unknown tongue? Let me back up just a little bit. You will get something from that that you don't get from the Bible. You'll get led astray. You'll get false doctrine out of it. Because that stuff comes from a spirit, but friends, it is not from the Holy Spirit of God. Prophecy came little by little. But now God's word is complete, so we don't need revelatory prophecy any longer. Now, what about this gift of knowledge? Well, with the gift of knowledge, understanding came little by little. How many of you know everything that you need to know? Men, you know everything that you need to know. Anything else you need to know, you ask your wife, because she knows everything else. 
really the truth of it is, of course, all of us are ever learning, aren't we? I mean, we don't know everything that there is to know. All of us are still learning. Now, the Bible contains perfect knowledge, and we've, we've, we've pretty much stated that, but I'm still working my way through a ho- whole lot of things that I don't know, and, and I imagine that you are too. I love the Sunday morning forum class because we get questions like we did today, and sometimes I have to say, I don't know. Ask God about that. I don't know about it. And, and sometimes I have to do that. And I learn, and it amazes me so many times, there are so many things that I don't yet know. Studied the Bible for 40 years, and there are things that I don't know. I go over to my office, and I pick up some of the commentaries that I have, and I read a certain portion of Scripture, and I look at the commentary to see what it has to say about it, and I find out, well, these men have a different opinion about what that Scripture means. And you know what that tells me? It tells me that some very brilliant, intelligent men just didn't know it all. There are lots of things that are still to be learned and will ever be learning. So even though the Bible contains everything that we need to know, we're far from learning it all. After contemplating so many things, and after God speaking directly to the Apostle Paul, you know what he said? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul didn't know it all. So Paul says that knowledge will vanish away. Well, what does he mean by that? Does he mean everybody's going to suddenly become stupid? Nobody has knowledge anymore? Of course not. What he means is supernatural knowledge will pass away. The ability to know things without having studied them, without having learned them, those things will pass away. Now, do do you know somebody who knows things about the Bible without ever having studied the Bible? I've met a lot of people who think they do. There are a lot of experts out there on the Bible, aren't they? And you find out most of them haven't read the Bible at all. I've talked to people that will try to explain to me what a Christian is, but they've never even read the Bible. But isn't it interesting here that in the same place where Paul puts this special divine knowledge that he says will cease, he puts it right there in the same place with tongues. So, if tongues aren't gone, then why don't we have this special knowledge anymore today? We don't know anybody that has that kind of knowledge, do we? So, it's the same thing. He says that tongues and this knowledge will cease. So, prophecies come piece by piece. Understanding comes little by little. But you know what the Word of God does? The Word of God puts us face to face with God's plans and purposes for this world. The Word of God puts us face to face with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. So thirdly, would you notice this? Scripture comes face to face. The purpose of the sign gifts like tongues and like knowledge and prophecy, those things were given to help understanding as long as the Bible was was incomplete and as long as the Bible or, or the church is in the infant stage. The church was beginning and growing. So so God hadn't given given full revelation. The completed word of God hadn't come. But now, Christianity is mature. We've had 2,000 years of church history. The Bible has been completed, and so now we have the Holy Spirit that guides us into all truth. Well, there's a very interesting analogy of this that Paul makes in verse number 12. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 12. He says, For now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part... But then shall I know, even as also I am known. 
The comparison that Paul is making there is, is like looking into a dim mirror and then suddenly having everything cleared up. In our day, we, we can look at a mirror and we can very clearly see our reflection. We have the ability to make very clear glass. We put that silver lining on the back of that piece of glass and we make a mirror so that when you look into the mirror, you can see everything that's there. All the good and all the bad, it's right there. In Paul's day, they didn't have that. What they would do is they would take a, a piece of brass and they would polish it, and that would be their mirror. Well, even with a highly polished piece of brass, at the very best, you get an imperfect image. It's not clear. It's not precise like we have today. Now, what he says here is he says that's like trying to understand when you don't have the complete revelation of the Bible. You only get part of the picture. But when the completed word of God comes and you have that, suddenly things get cleared up. Paul, for instance, did not have all the revelation that John did. Paul died before John, before he wrote the book of Revelation. So we notice that Paul doesn't write as much about end times as John did. Uh, Paul didn't write as much about descriptions of heaven like John did. And that's because Paul didn't have the exact same kind of revelation. And so John, given that revelation, knew more than Paul knew on those particular subjects. Now, the reason that Paul could not see those things as clearly is because the Word of God hadn't been completed. But now that it is completed, you and I can understand some things by reading all the way through the book of Revelation that even Paul may not have completely understood unless God was going to give him certain divine knowledge. But we can read the Word of God and we can see that. Now, look at what Paul says that the state of things are with sign gifts and the like. He says in verse number 11, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. What happens when you grow up? You stop playing with childish things. A little baby likes to play with rattles and those little mobiles that you put on the crib. I'm very experienced with this right now because of these babies that are in my house. And so I know all about that. Well, as a child gets older, like our little grandbaby, Elisa, she's older than the ones that have just been born. She's graduated to things like playing with dolls. She plays with those. And a little boy, when he gets a little bit older, he'll play with Army Men and G.I. Joe. I guess they still have that. And so they play with those kinds of things. Then as you get older... You don't play with those anymore. You, you play with more mature toys. When you're very young, you start out riding a tricycle. When you get a little bit older, you get on a bicycle with training wheels. Then a little bit later, you take the training wheels off and you're two-wheeling it around. Then you get 15, 16 years old and you get a driver's license. Now you've got four wheels under you. And now things are a little bit more mature. Well, what happens, though, if you see an adult riding down the street with a helmet on his head... He's riding down the street on a bicycle with training wheels. You say, well, boy, that's something. That's really a mature thing that guy is doing. No, you'd step back and you'd say, well, something's wrong with this picture. Here you have a grown person using something that only children use. Grown-up people don't do that. And you see this is exactly what Paul is saying with sign gifts and with tongues. At best, speaking in tongues was for baby, immature Christians. So in Paul's day, he's wondering why you're still messing around with these tongue things, tongues things. You should have graduated beyond that. 
So if it takes tongues to make you spiritual, you must really be an immature Christian. Now think about the Corinthian church. Let me prove my point to you. These are people that have sign gifts and they're using them. They're speaking in tongues. Well, if you're told that you must speak in tongues and that's the way that you move on to the next level of Christianity, then what about these Corinthians? Were they mature people? No. You've got to read the whole book to get the whole picture. What did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3, verse number 1? And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. So here are people using more tongues than anybody around here ever heard of. And Paul says, you are immature spiritual babies. Paul said, when I was a child, I loved childish things. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. So the best that you can ever say about tongues is that no mature Christian would ever think about using them. It's for babies. It's not for mature Christians. In fact, folks, it was for the church when it was in its infancy, and the church is no longer in its infancy. So why does somebody want to go back to something that they were doing before there was complete revelation? So this is why Paul says, these things will cease. When we have the complete word of God, we don't have the need for the gifts, for those particular gifts. So why, when you have the Rolls Royce of complete revelation, do you want to go back to the tricycle of tongues? It just doesn't make sense. So those gifts will cease. Some gifts will cease. God's word is complete. But thirdly, love will always continue. Now we come back to the theme of the chapter. Love is primary and love is permanent. Now let's sum it up. Look at verse number 13. And now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest of these is charity. The greatest of these is love. So now we have faith, we have hope, we have charity or love. These are all great, but which one of them is going to outlast all of the others? Well, let's take it one by one. What about faith? Faith will end in sight. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. And so when you come face to face with Jesus, why do you need faith any longer? Faith is going to end in sight. And when we see Jesus, we won't need faith anymore. Now, right now, today, you absolutely do need faith. The Bible says it takes faith to believe in Jesus as your Savior. You have to have faith. It says you cannot please God without faith. But that's right now. When you see God, when you see Jesus Christ, you don't need that faith any longer. Now, what about hope? Hope will be realized. What is it that you're hoping for? I hope for heaven. I hope that I'm going to go to heaven. When the Bible speaks about our hope, it's not talking about uncertainty like we speak today. It's talking about a certain thing. So hope for, an, for a Christian is absolutely certain. So when I get to heaven... Why would I hope for heaven? I'm already there. Paul says in Romans 8, verse 24, For we are saved by hope, but hope that is not seen, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, what doth he yet hope for? Now there, admittedly, he's not talking about heaven, but the principle is exactly the same. So Paul is saying, if you possess something right now, then why would you hope for it? So when you get to heaven, you're already in your heavenly home. Why do you need hope? Your hope is realized. So hope will be realized and hope is no longer needed. But what about this third one? What about love? Love 
is forever. What does the Bible say about love in relation to God? It says God is love. God's not faith. The Bible doesn't say God is faith. The Bible doesn't say God is hope. It says God is love. So love is one of God's eternal attributes. So as long as there is God, there will be love. And so when you get to heaven, you're going to love God, and God will love you, and that will last for all eternity. So the point here then, the sign gifts are gone. Tongues, prophecy, knowledge, all of those things are gone by the end of the first century. Faith, hope, and love are present as long as we live in this life, and then faith will outlast them all. So where should you concentrate? What are you going to concentrate on right now? Are you going to concentrate on speaking in tongues and gifts of healing? Are you going to talk about prophecy, revelatory things and about knowledge? Is that where God wants you to concentrate? No, God wants you to concentrate and put your efforts into faith and hope and love. Faith, hope, and charity. Put your efforts into them because that's what it takes to become a mature Christian. And now abideth and now abideth faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is what? Love. Absolutely. That's what it takes to put away childish things. Let's pray. Heavenly Fathers, we come to you today. We're thankful that we can take your word and we can divide it and we can come to the truth and recognize what you want us to know. Lord, help us to understand very clearly the love that we are to have for one another. But most of all, I pray today that someone will recognize the love that Jesus Christ has for them and they will repent of their sins and trust you as their own personal Savior. Speak to hearts today as we sing this invitation hymn. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.